Some of you may have children that are of the age that mine are, and right now mine are really, really into the Lego movie. Now, if you've seen it, it's not just for kids, it's actually a movie that you can enjoy if you've ever had anything to do with Legos, the complex interlocking brick system that it is. And, and the Lego movie is, is sort of all of the things that you ever wanted to, to do with Legos and pretend were happening, it's all wrapped up into one and one incredible story of saving the world with Legos. And that's, that's exactly what happens. And so uh, we, we must, I think we've watched the Lego movie at least, what, a couple hundred thousand times by now, I think. That's what it is. In fact, my youngest son, Duke, who's four years old, that is now his new favorite movie, which has replaced Planes, Fire, and Rescue somehow. I'm not sure, but now it's the Lego movie. And so the, the way, of course, that, that Legos work is that you, you can seem a little overwhelmed at first when you... You get a big package of Legos or, or a set, and, and there they all are, and you wonder, now, how exactly do I turn this pile of Legos into that, what I see? And so Lego knows all of this, and they take full advantage of the fact that you can be overwhelmed with all of the pieces and not know exactly how to do it. So they sell you things like an ideas book, which we, of course, have purchased. And, uh, and so ideas unlock your imagination. Boy, there's some really incredible stuff that you can get an idea from. And so you see here, you've got here are all your little pieces that you could have. And we have all of these little pieces. And then you could build something like this with all of those pieces of Legos. How incredible is that? And if you don't like that, then you could keep going and you could make it different. You could build a castle. You could put a red roof instead of a black roof. All of these neat things. Now, if, you, if you're the kind of person that says, okay... That's all well and good, but I still have just a pile of Legos. That picture looks great, but how do I get there? Then you buy a set, and they have instructions. And you just follow it step by step. They've got neat little pictures here. And basically anybody can follow the instructions. And then what happens when you follow the instructions? You wind up with some really, really neat Creations. This one just so happens to be from the Lego movie. You come up with this neat little motorcycle thing, and it, it transforms into other stuff too, right? I mean, you can kind of switch around, and you can move stuff, and it's supposed to be uh, transformable. It's really, really cool. That's what happens when you follow either the ideas or the specific instructions. It becomes less overwhelming. You can take something that's chaotic and bring it down to something that actually looks Pretty cool. I have to say thanks to my kids for letting me borrow all their stuff this morning. We're in a series on the idea of giving. And to be honest with you, it's something that sort of like a pile of Legos can be a little bit overwhelming. It can be a little confusing. It can be something that you look and say, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do. I know that this is supposed to lead towards something. This is supposed to, to be a part of my life. I'm supposed to be able to take this information and then do something with it. But without some specific instructions, without a how-to guide, it can be a little bit daunting. So this morning, if you're just joining us, if this is your first week here, we've been talking about the idea of giving. It's certainly something that Jesus talked about quite a bit. He talked about our relationship with our stuff, our money. And Jesus himself said that you can't serve two different masters. What do you say? You can't serve both God and what? And money. 
Many of us know those verses. Jesus talked a lot about how where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So we know that there's a direct relationship between our loyalties to God and maybe an inverse relationship to our loyalties to our stuff. And so we're talking about the idea of giving. Jesus talked about it a lot. Now we also know that giving is at the center of God's heart. I've said this each week now in our, in our now three-week series. God so loved the world that what? He gave. I mean, even people who've never been in church know that. They know that verse. At least. You've heard it. You see it on TV. The Super Bowl's coming next week. There's going to be somebody in the stands with a John 3.16 sign. Somebody will look that up. For God so loved the world that He gave. The idea is that God loves and so He gave. Now, from a very practical sense, you don't even have to know that, that Jesus talked a lot about this. You don't even have to, to believe that God so loved the world so He gave. To know that in a practical sense, one day you're going to give all your stuff away anyway. It's going to happen. You might not do it voluntarily, but upon your death, you've given all your stuff away. You can't take any of it with you. That's a cliche, but it's also true. And so the idea is, if we can't take any of it with us, we're going to give it all away. If God's heart is to give, if Jesus talked a lot about this, then why don't we take a look on this side of heaven and figure out how is it... Why is it and what is it to give? Paul is the, the writer of the scripture that we'll look today. The Apostle Paul wrote a couple of letters that we have in our New Testament. Letters to a group known as the Corinthians. So if you've got a Bible handy or a smartphone or a tablet, or you've got the sheet today that's got the scripture, somehow get that out, keep it in front of you during the sermon. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians the book of 2 Corinthians, we're going to begin in some verses in chapter 8 and spill over into chapter 9. Now, Paul is, is writing a letter that is not totally about giving, but there's one little part here where he is encouraging, he's, he's reinforcing, he's kind of getting on the Corinthians just a little bit to make sure that they continue, that they complete their part of a contribution toward an offering that was going to go to some Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Now, here's what's happening. Paul had been, of course, in Jerusalem and knew of the situation. Many of these Christians had lost their jobs. They couldn't go back to their families because they had converted to Christianity and now away from Judaism, and they were essentially uh, shunned. They, they, they weren't folks that were welcome anymore, and they struggled financially. The churches there were hurting and, and going through some, some major financial difficulties. So Paul rallies the troops. He goes around sending letters and visiting all kinds of different people, all the Christians he could find around the region, and even those who weren't Jewish Christians, and he's saying, look, we've got to help these people. They are in dire straits. They are really struggling. They, they don't have enough money. They don't have their needs met. So let's rally around them. Let's collect an offering, and we'll give it to them to help them out. So that's what he's doing. And so part of what he's doing is to write to the Corinthians, these folks that he had interacted with before, and, and he wants them to contribute to this collection. Now what he does in order to get them to understand where he's coming from is he saturates this whole part of the letter with talk about the grace of God. This isn't something that Paul says, look, you better give or else. I'm coming to get you. You better give, and as I said last week, or else I'm going to pray that God takes everything away from you. I'm an apostle. I'm really close to God. He listens to me, and trust me, God will do it. If I ask him to destroy you, he'll destroy you. That's not what he comes at with. He, he's not coming to them with that kind of talk. He's talking about the grace of God. So, so we looked at first the what about giving. What is giving? We saw in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-7, through 7, that giving is an extreme privilege. 
It, it is something that God allows us to do to participate in His work. Verses 8 through 15 of chapter 8 that we looked at last week, giving as a response to the grace of Jesus. When we look again at His grace to see what He has done for us, to understand that on our own, we stand over here, and we're trying our best to get to God, we think. We're going to do all the right things. I'm going to clean myself up. I'm going to try really hard to be a good person so that God will be happy with me. And there are lots of us that are going through life like that. Lots of the people that you're around on a daily basis, that's how they're going through life. They're just trying to be good. I saw over the weekend, maybe some of you saw this as well, that Ernie Banks died. Ernie Banks, a Hall of Fame baseball player, Mr. Cub, they called him. He played his entire career with the Chicago Cubs, was the first African-American player for the Cubs organization back in the early 50s. And he was an incredible player. And in his statement was always, let's play two. He always wanted to play a doubleheader. Let's play two games today. And he was a very, very contagious personality. Always smiling. Was the kind of guy that I'm sure was, was a great teammate. And I saw yesterday, the day before, somebody had posted on Twitter a little, a little cartoon drawing of Ernie Banks walking through the pearly gates of heaven and and there meeting him was a guy named Ron Santo, who was the Cubs' third baseman during Ernie Banks' time, and also Harry Carey, the Cubs' old announcer. We have in our mind that so long as you are a fun-loving, easy-to-get-along-with person who does some good things and treats people the right way, that that guarantees you entrance into heaven. And we like to think on those terms. We like to think that somebody who was so gregarious automatically gets there. I don't know about Ernie Banks' spiritual condition. I won't speculate on it. But I've told you this before. When Paul says, think about the grace of Jesus, he's also making sure that we think about our own condition apart from Jesus. Do you understand in the Scripture, and I just want to make this clear, reiterate it again, for those who might be confused or for those who need more confirmation, you cannot ever, under any circumstances, work your way, earn your way, be good enough to guarantee your way into eternal life with Jesus. It's impossible. God is absolutely perfect without sin, and sin cannot be in His presence whatsoever. <laughs> We, we, on the other hand, have sin, don't we? Now, you can claim you have no sin. And then we could go back and we could figure out at some point, way back when, this morning, you committed a sin, right? You did something that you would say, well, okay, I guess if, if, I, if I recognize I'm accountable to God, okay, he probably doesn't like that. All of us have sinned, so here's what we are. We stand over here on our own trying to work our way to God. God says, if you sin just one time, I'm done with you. I want nothing to do with you. You cannot be in my presence. Boy, it sounds harsh, doesn't it? But it's true. It's the bad news. The bad news is awful. The good news, however, Paul pointed to last week, is consider the grace of Jesus, who though he was rich, he's using an analogy, though he had everything, he left it all and became poor. He became as nothing so that we could trade our poverty, our spiritual poverty, for his spiritual riches. 
So over here, what we do is place ourselves under the grace of Jesus through faith in Him to say, you are my only hope for salvation. You're the only hope that I've got. Please forgive me. I give you everything. I place my faith in you. And now when we stand before God, we don't stand on our own, but we are covered, the Bible says, by Jesus and His sacrifice, His death and resurrection on the cross. Good luck over here. Paul says, good luck. You can give all you want. Let me just tell you, we're talking about a series on giving. You can give millions of dollars to churches, to good causes. And over here on your own, you still stand under the wrath and anger and punishment of God for all eternity. Bad news. However, Paul says when you stand under the grace of God, throwing yourself on His mercy by faith in Jesus, then all that stuff actually does matter. All that stuff can be something that's pleasing to God, but only first when you throw yourself completely on the mercy of Jesus Christ by faith in Him. Just, just want us to understand that. I, I'm looking at most folks here this morning, probably saying, okay, I get it, move on. But I don't want to ever take for granted that even in church, the people understand that. That's where it all begins. So Paul is saturating this letter with the grace of God. He gets to chapter 8, verse 16, and we're going to look through chapter 9, verse 7 this morning. And he really gives not the what and not the why anymore behind giving, but here's how we are to do it. Here's how it can matter. Look at chapter 9, verse 7. Not going to be on the screen this morning because I'm bouncing around a little bit. So look there at your Bible, your tablet, smartphone, whatever you got, the little handout. Look at chapter 9, verse 7. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not out of regret or necessity. And here's the part that maybe you've heard before. For God loves a cheerful giver. You heard that before, maybe. Again, don't have to be in church sometimes to hear these kind of things. Maybe you've heard this before. God loves a cheerful giver. Well, you say, well, that's why I don't give, because I'm not cheerful. (laughs) I'm not going to give... And not have God love my giving, well, I'm not cheerful. I don't want to do it. I'm not Until I'm cheerful in giving, I'm not going to give. You say, well, I'm doing exactly what God wants me to do. I'm not sure that's totally the point. The point is, and this is a very tough truth. You'll see there the first part of our outline this morning. The tough truth is that not all giving pleases God. God loves a cheerful giver. God is pleased. God receives. God, uh, He enjoys Those who give cheerfully. So the flip side is that there is some kind of giving that does not please God. You might give a ton of money. Whether it's in volume or by percentage. You might give a ton to the church, to organizations or whatever. But it it might not be pleasing to God. Do you understand that? I mean, we, we give... Maybe some of us on a regular basis, but we give a large percentage of our income or we give just a large amount of money. But I, I, the tough truth this morning, based upon chapter 9, verse 7, is there's some giving that doesn't please God. You might be in the habit of giving to lots of good causes, and there certainly are so many in our county that you give to. But the hard truth is that it might not be pleasing to God. And so my question to you is, if it's not pleasing to God, why on earth would you continue to do that? And then the flip side question from you might be, well, okay, that's great. I'm doing this because I think it's pleasing to God. How then can I make sure that what I'm doing when I give my money to something, when I give my stuff away, whatever it is, that I'm pleasing to God? I'm glad you asked because that's what the sermon's about this morning. 
I want to give us this morning three characteristics, according to what Paul talks about here in these two chapters as they overlap, three characteristics of givers or types of giving that please God. The first of which is trust. Chapter 8, verse 16. I want you to look at it with me. Thanks be to God who put the same diligence for you into the heart of Titus. Paul here writing about one of his associates. For he, Titus, accepted our urging and being very diligent went out to you by his own choice. With him we have sent the brother who is praised throughout the churches for his gospel ministry. So there's somebody else going with Titus. The idea here is Paul is sending these folks to these three men to the Corinthians to collect their part of the offer. Right? So that's what he's writing about. And not only that, but he was also appointed by the churches to accompany us with this gift that is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We are taking this precaution so that no one can find fault with us concerning this large sum administered by us. For we are making provision for what is honorable, not only before the Lord, but also before men. We have also sent with him our brother, whom we have often tested in many circumstances and found diligent, and now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker serving you. As for our brothers, they are the messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore, before the churches, show them proof of your love and of our boasting about you. Now, that, that sounds like a lot of jumbled language there. Paul, if you understand his relationship with the Corinthians, at times it was strained. He, they didn't always get along. He, he was hard on them. Uh, they got out of line occasionally, and he kind of had to thump them back into line. He gave a little pastoral push occasionally. And, and so he understands that he's kind of got to operate a little bit differently with them. And he's just saying, hey, look, I want to be sure that you all trust what's going on when you're giving your money. And so he talks about different elements of these, trying to avoid criticism for the way that the collection is being administered. He wants them to make sure that they trust the, the people that are involved. And so he talks about these people. He talks about Titus, and he talks about this other brother he calls him. Look at verse 18 again. We've sent with him the brother who is praised throughout the churches for his gospel ministry. He's also been appointed, verse 19, by the churches to accompany us with this gift that's being administered. And then verse 22, we've also sent with, with them our brother whom we've often tested in many circumstances. We found him diligent. And then he reinforces Titus again. He says, he's my partner and my co-worker. These guys are all messengers. They're trustworthy people, Paul says. He says, if you're going to give, we want to make sure that you can trust the people that are involved. He also wanted them to trust the purpose for which the collection was being made. He said in verse 19, it's being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself. And he says to show our eagerness to help. Here's the purpose. Here's why we're doing this. He said, look, you've got to trust the people that are involved. And I want you to also trust the purpose for which this is being collected. We're, we're doing this, first of all, for the glory of God. We want to make sure that these Christians are taken care of so that God's glory is defended and his message can continue to go out. And he says it's also for our eagerness, our show of goodwill. Now, now this might not seem like that big a deal. You say, well, yeah, Christians ought to show goodwill toward one another. I mean, the Scripture talks about that. Do good to everybody, especially to those who are of the household of God, the Scripture says. But if you understand the racial divide that was going on during this time, the Corinthians were not Jewish. The Jerusalem Christians were 
The Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, and the Jews didn't always see eye to eye. They operated a little bit differently. And so Paul is saying, look, this is our sign of goodwill toward people who are different, even though they share the same faith, they're different from us racially. And ultimately, this was a sign of the reconciliation possible in a relationship with Jesus Christ. The glory of God, the reconciliation between other people. He said, that's the purpose. That's why we're doing this. So trust the process. It was also important for Paul to help them see that they could trust the the, the process that's being going, that's going on, the purpose, and then the process. Verse 20, look at this. We're taking this precaution. He's talking about, we're, we're telling you why these guys are so trustworthy. We're taking this precaution so that no one can find fault with us concerning this large sum administered by us. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a little bit of question. When you, when you give your money away, now, now okay, now tell me what's going to happen with it. Especially if it's a large sum. Okay, now, now help me understand, where's this going? Who's going to handle this? What's the process by which this is going to get where it's going to go? Maybe some of us today are a little bit skeptical. You know, we see commercials and we hear different things at church about things that we could give toward. And, and then, we, then we see scandals where, you know, it, it wasn't handled the right way. It was embezzled. Or the CEO or the pastor or whomever it might have been, all they were doing was just patting their own bank account. The administrative cost took 98% of the gift. 2% of it went to what it was supposed to go for. We've become a little bit skeptical in some cases of the process by which our money is handled. Paul, though, wanted them to understand in verse 21, we're making, the, we're making provision for what is honorable, not only before the Lord, but also before men, before people. He wanted to be sure that everyone knew that the people that were handling the money were of the highest character that the process they're going through is, is of highest accountability. He wanted the collection to be done right in the eyes of God and in the eyes of people. I want you to know that, that here at Elm Grove, we are doing our absolute best to ensure that you can trust the people, you can trust the purpose, and you can trust the process of what happens when you give your money to the ministry. The effort here at Elm Grove. Inside your bulletin, I mentioned the, the stuff from the trustees. You'll see the finance committee nominations. It just so happens that that occurs on the, you know, it hits the bulletin the same day I'm talking about this. All of those people that are listed there are extremely trustworthy. They're of high character. They wouldn't be nominated if they weren't. So we're trying to make sure here, and just for practical purposes, let you know this, that, that the folks who administer the financial situation, the money of the church, are of the highest character. Our church treasurer for the last several years, Christy Nelson, is of extremely high character. We're in the process of finding a new treasurer, and I tell you this, the number one thing won't necessarily be proficiency with numbers. It's going to be character. It's going to be who can we trust with this process, with this money. And then the purpose for which it's collected. You know, we're going to make sure that we put trustworthy people. And then we back that up to say, let's make sure that in our budgeting process, we spend as much as we possibly can on things that will last forever. That's ministry to people. That's outreach to folks who don't know Jesus. That's evangelism. Let's spend as much as possible. And certainly, because we own property, let's be honest, there are overhead costs, if you want to put it in those terms. That's just the way it is. We've got to pay the bills. 
But I think it's also our responsibility, both in the finance committee, our trustees, our deacons, our church council, all of the people that are in leadership, and all of us who have a say in what goes on, that we continue to make sure that the purpose for which we spend our money is mainly things that will last forever. We want you to be able to trust the people and the process and the purpose here. Paul goes on and he secondly talks about the characteristic of giving that pleases God. Not only a trust to say, all right, look, I'm going to trust what's happening. I'm going to give it. I'm not going to just try to track it. I'm going to, I'm going to give it. I'm going to trust the people, the process, the purpose. But also, secondly, is generosity. How should you give? You ought to give with trust. Let's be honest. Trust the people that God has put in place for the collection of the offering. Secondly, generosity. And, and let, me, let me back up just for a second. Just so you know, if you, if you come to me after the service and you say, I, I forgot to put something in the offering plate, I will run away from you. you I will run. I, I, I promise you. And you won't be able to catch me. I'm quick. I will not take your money. I will not take a single dime. I will figure out somebody. I'll, I'll get Evan. He's more trustworthy than me. I'm going to get somebody who's going, to, who's going to take it to where it's supposed to go. Also, I don't see who gives anything. I don't know who gives, who doesn't. I don't know how much you give, how little you give. I don't have any idea. I don't want to know. I don't need to know. And also, I, ha- I, I do not have access. I don't, I don't sign the checks. I can't write the checks, all that kind of Just so you know. I know some, for some, you've been in other churches, maybe it's different, just so you know. Secondly is generosity. Look at chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Now concerning the ministry to the saints, he's talking about the collection. It's unnecessary for me to write to you. Paul says, look, I, we've been through all this before. The word actually that he uses is superfluous. I love that word. It's superfluous for me. It's, it's unnecessary. I don't really have to do this. I know your eagerness, he says, and I brag about you to the Macedonians. Hey, Achaia has been prepared since last year, he's told him. Look, you guys, I know you, you're, you're eager to give. You want to participate. He says, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. It's contagious. He says, but, <laughs> I love this part, but I sent the brothers so our boasting about you in the matter would not prove empty so that you'd be prepared just as I said, just in case you need a little reminder. Oh, oh here it is. I'm sending these guys, not that I think I have to, but just in case I'm going to make sure that they're there. For if any Macedonians should come with me and find you unprepared, caught off guard, We, not to mention you, would be embarrassed in that situation. Therefore, I considered it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised, so that it will be ready as a gift and not as an extortion. Now this this is interesting. Paul says, look, I don't want you to to all of a sudden, you see us coming down the road, and, oh, uh, we told him we were going to give something. Uh, who, they might have some spare change. Can we throw something together here? Uh, go cash in a camel. Let, let's, let's do that. You know, does anybody have any grain? We'll throw it all together. We'll put it in a pile. Hey, uh, we, you know, we got it. Paul said, like, that's not what I'm looking for. I don't want you to feel pressured. I don't want you to throw it together at the last minute. In fact, he's, he knows that none of that kind of giving is going to be generous in any way. So instead, what he wants them to do is to make sure that they stay on top of it and they plan to give as generously as they possibly can. Look at verse 6. Remember this, he says. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. He's using farming terminology here. 
Now, all things being equal, soil, amount of rain, amount of sunlight, all of that stuff, what Paul is saying that the rule of thumb is, all things being equal, the person who plants more seeds will get a bigger harvest than the person who plants fewer seeds. Makes sense. What he's telling them is that if you'll be generous, if you leverage your generosity, then you'll be rewarded most generously. Now next week, just so you know, we're going to talk about some of the rewards that come with generous giving. So if you've always wondered, what is it that God's going to do in response to my generous giving? Show up next week. All right, we're going to talk about that because Paul goes on to explain it. But what he says right here is, look, I want you to be as generous as possible. Don't throw it together at the last minute. Don't do it because we showed up and you feel some pressure. And okay, well, let's you know, no, you've got a plan to be generous. So trust, generosity, and thirdly, enthusiasm. Verse 7, each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not out of regret or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. That word cheerful there means enthusiastic, excited, joyous. You ever felt excited to give? (laughs) Sometimes. The plate was passed a few minutes ago, and for some, we kind of say, oh, I forgot, I'm I'm here in church, let me throw something in. For others, though, this is an enthusiastic, I'm I'm so blessed to be able to participate in the ministry that God is doing. That's the kind of giving Paul wants. He says, you should decide in your heart, make a decision, own this. This isn't something somebody imposes on you. He said, decide for yourself that you're going to be a generous giver. Decide in your heart. Now this, this just so you know, doesn't really carry the, the connotation that every person should, well, I, I've decided I'm going to give 25 cents. I've decided in my heart. feel pretty good about that. Uh, it's, it's very generous for me. Um, and and that's not, it's not exactly that kind of thing. Or another person says, well, I'm going to give everything. I've decided in my heart I'm just going to give it all. That's not what he's saying. He, ultimately what he's telling them is this is to be something voluntary. Make up your mind to do it. Don't don't listen to me. Don't do it because I told you. Do it because you've decided in your heart that this is what you're going to be about. So he talks to them about God loving a cheerful giver. It's not hard to understand why God loves cheerful giving, why He loves enthusiastic giving. That's what He does. You realize that God enthusiastically sent Jesus, not reluctantly. He sent Jesus enthusiastically. Jesus even though he did not want to experience both the physical pain and the spiritual pain associated with the cross, he voluntarily went there. Nobody forced him there. Nobody coerced him. He voluntarily went to the cross on our behalf. Let me me encourage you with a few things here, uh, points of application on this idea of, of giving enthusiastically. And these are not on the screen, they're not on your outline, but you, you may want to, to jot some notes and go back and figure out, talk with your family, figure out how this applies to you. Let me encourage you when it comes to, to giving with enthusiasm, as Paul says, to plan for it. Make a plan to give. Well, this past Wednesday we, we talked about, we're following up each Wednesday, uh, each Sunday morning with a Wednesday seminar, if you will, discussion group, whatever you want to call it on some money management principles. And this past week, we talked about the need to plan for where our money's going to go. Uh, Paul hints toward this when he says each person should, should do as he has decided in his heart. You've made up your mind. I'm going to make a plan to give. Let me encourage you, first of all, in this plan, how, how is it 
that we should give, some of you would say, well, how much? <laughs> how much are we talking here? How much should I plan to give? Well, let, let me tell you, before you figure out how much, first of all, tell your money who it belongs to. I would encourage you, and this is, this is for believers in Jesus. I would encourage you to tell your money who it belongs to. Give to God first. Whatever that may mean to you. Some would say, well, should I give off the gross amount of income or off the net after taxes and whatever? I'll just tell you that, that from where I am, the decision, just so you know, the decision that I have made with my wife is we're going to give off the gross. God's going to get his first. Appreciate the government, but I love God. Amen. You know what I'm saying? You don't have to take that as pressure. That's where I'm at. You may say, well, okay, well, we're going to give off the net. I'm not going to argue with you. But figure out how it is that you can give to God first and say, God owns it all. And let me tell you this. Once you begin that process, and I'm, we're not going to collect another offering this morning, so you, you don't have to be nervous. But once you begin that process, what begins to take root and to flower in your heart is a worship of God with all of who you are, including your stuff, and idolatry, the worship of things, the, the, the worship of money begins to, to be able to be uprooted in your heart. Begin to tell your money who it belongs to. Now, secondly, this idea of how do we plan for it, how much should we give? Secondly, let me encourage you to plan to become a percentage giver. Tell your money who it belongs to and then plan to become a, a percentage giver. Just so you know, this is the biblical pattern. There, there is no particular amount that is said. It's often done in percentages. What does the Bible say about this? Now, for some, you would say, well, the Bible says to give a tithe. The word tithe means tenth. So I should give a tenth of everything that I earn. And for some, that's been your practice. Studies show that, for the most part, that's not the practice of Christians. Uh, most studies will tell you that, that usually uh, the very small percentage of people actually give a tithe at 10%. Most folks are going to give somewhere between 2 and 3%. That's about what mo- most, most Christians will do. What does the Bible then say about it? Now, some will say that it's still the law. Essentially, that's the biblical law, and that's the standard, period. There's no argument to be had. It's, it's a tenth. It's a tithe. The problem with that is that the New Testament doesn't explicitly reinforce it, except when Jesus kind of hints about it when he's getting on the Pharisees about their focus on some other things. And he said, well, you should have done all these things, including tithing, and then worry about all that stuff too. He said, what you've done is you've elevated all the small things to a big status. And so he kind of hints toward it. So some say it's still the law, but there, there's there's a problem with that because the New Testament doesn't reinforce it. Some say it's totally gone. There's you can't you can't in a New Testament world you cannot argue that the tithe is still the requirement for Christians because the Old Testament is the Old Testament law is no longer in effect. Jesus never reinforced it. None of the apostles that wrote the, the rest of Scripture and the Gospels and so on, they never said tithe is still there, it's still the law. The Old Testament makes it very explicit. The Old Testament law is gone, so the tithe is no longer in effect. You see where I'm going. Some, however, trace the tithe back to before the law. The idea of giving a tenth was in effect when Abraham met this mysterious priest known as Melchizedek, way back in Genesis, and it says that voluntarily he gave a tenth of all that he had to this priest as an offering. 
So some would argue, well, the law, yes, required the tithe out of the Jewish people, but even before then, the pattern was to give a tenth. What should we do? My stance, just so you know, and this is not the only stance, this is simply where I've fallen on this. My stance is that I believe that the tithe was the biblical example of giving before the law. It was reinforced by the law and never negated by the New Testament. The New Testament writers and Jesus, they never refuted it and they never commanded it. Understand that. What they taught was generosity, which is way above and beyond what the minimum might be. It seems as if, what I can understand, is that the Bible holds up the tithe as sort of a minimum. And then calls us to generosity as much as we can, even above and beyond that. Now some of you are saying, (laughs) um, I'm one of the 2-3% to folks. Um, Boy, uh, another 8%. I don't know about that. You're telling me that I can't please God unless I do that? That's not what I'm saying. What I would encourage you with is to first become a percentage giver. To say no matter what our income, we will give this percent. So it's not an amount, it's a percent. And then begin the process with the Holy Spirit as your guide. With looking into the Scriptures for advice and for guidance. Make a plan to start somewhere and build toward being as generous as you possibly can be. Let me be honest with you. Some folks who are on a very, very low income, who are not regular percentage givers, if I were to tell you right now to go and and give 10%, it would absolutely ruin you. It would ruin you. I'm not going to tell you that out of law. You better do it. To be a percentage giver, work toward being as generous as possible, understand it seems the biblical minimum is that 10%. Work to see if you can get there one day. For others, though, who have lots and lots of money, 10% is weak. It's weak. And hear me on that. That's not generous. It's weak. You're given the bare minimum just to pay off God. Maybe this morning the Holy Spirit says, be more generous. I don't care if you give it to the church. That's not even what I'm talking about. You understand where I'm coming from? How generous can you be? For some, 10% is so generous you can't even imagine it right now. Start somewhere. For others, 10%, you're not even feeling that. Generous, sacrificial giving. I hope you understand why. I'd love to talk with you more about it after the service. There's not time for question and answer this morning, right? So, So maybe we can talk about that again. But understand, be a percentage giver. And along the way, as Paul says here in verse 7, Each one should decide to do it in his heart, not out of regret or of necessity. Not only plan for giving, but commit to it. I mean, over the long haul, it's about trusting God. It really is. I mean, that's what you're declaring. I trust God. I'm going to give to Him first a percentage of my income to the ministry that He's created at my local church and certainly even beyond that. I'm going to give to that. I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to stick with this idea over a long period of time. And then as Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver. Let me encourage you to to elevate giving beyond some mere obligation or something to pay the bills at church or some way to feel better about ourselves or 
well, I'm rewarded because I give, or well, a pastor started talking about giving, so I guess the next couple of weeks we're going to really prove to him that we're giving, and so we'll increase it. No, no, not any of that. Elevate it way beyond that. Understand that this is about pleasing God, not, not responding to me. It's Him that we have in mind when we give. Not the person next to us, not the pastor, not even the church budget. It's God. How can we please God and how generous we can be? What now? I want to, to encourage us, to challenge us, to, to lead us as best I can to become the most generous individuals, the most generous church that we can possibly be. Well, we've proven this over and over. It's almost, I feel like Paul, it's superfluous for me to even talk about this. You realize that we've taken spontaneous offerings in the past? And I, I just shake my head every time. Not because of how awful, <laughs> but because of how generous those offerings are. I mean, we've, we've collected for different things, and we'll just put people at the door. And just in what you have on you, well, like that, it's $800 to $1,000, just all, you know, out of nowhere. So next week, we're going to turn you all upside down and shake you really good. Put the, no, I'm just joking. But it, I, you know, almost feel, almost feel kind of silly even saying, go be generous, because I really believe that we are. But I just like Paul just to say, hey, you know what? Just in case we need a reminder here. Just in case we, we, we need to, to remember what kind of giving pleases God. It's, it's trusting the process and the people and the purpose. It's, it's generosity through percentage giving and enthusiastically doing that. So let's continue here at Elm Grove. And I really want your help to, to make sure we stick to this this year, next year, and long after all of us are gone to set the pattern that we will create and maintain the most trustworthy system that we possibly can. We don't have right now anybody who's ever alone with all the money. People count it. It's taken to the bank and all of that stuff. We don't have people who have access to cash on their own. All of that, we need to make sure that we continue to put the most godly and wise people that we can in the wisest parameters and money management practices. I think we also need to make sure that we ensure that the church budget dedicates as, as much money as we possibly can, as I mentioned, toward things that are eternal, things that will not crumble one day, as much as we possibly can. That We need to hold ourselves to that. And then we also need to as best we can, focus when we give. When we talk to our family about what we're going to do and so on, that we focus on pleasing God as if He is the only one watching. How then would you give? This isn't something to now say, well, I guess I'm supposed to go and give 10% of everything. And I Here where I'm coming from. Try to give you some personal examples, but I'm not trying to impose law on you. Ultimately, what Paul is saying is he said in chapter 8, verse 9, look again at the grace of Jesus. Let Him be your determining factor on giving and on how much and on how generous. What is it going to take to simply please God with your giving? Trust the process, the people, all of that. Give generously. Give with enthusiasm. Just try to please God. Say, Lord, You've given it all to me, and so Lord... I as a response to your grace, I'm going to be obedient in these areas. Let's be as generous as we possibly can be. The Lord has been so gracious to us. Not out of obligation. 
but of enthusiasm for who He is. Let's pray together. God's Word and of looking at it for yourself, that you would be at a point to where there's some sort of decision to be made this morning, whether it's it's completely life-altering, as I mentioned, to throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ, recognizing your, your sin, confessing Him as Lord, placing your faith in Him, life-altering decision this morning, to call out to Him in prayer, Lord Jesus, forgive me. I believe in you. For others, the decision is maybe maybe one of changing direction financially. And you'd say, you know, from this point on, we want to, we want to make sure to tell our money who it belongs to. So it's a prayer of commitment this morning to say, Lord, we're going to do that. We're going to figure it out. We're going to plan and become percentage givers and see how generous we can possibly be. For others, it's a confirmation. It's superfluous for me to teach you this this morning. And you just say, Lord, keep me going in this. Once more, Lord, we commit to you. What's your decision? If yours is the one that's life-altering to give your life for the very first time to Jesus this morning, I, I would love to be able to celebrate with you. I'm not going to embarrass you or ask you to give a speech. But I'd love to be able to pray with you. I'd love to be able to, to reinforce that and help you. Or if you need prayer in some other area, I'll be here happy to do that. God, we're grateful to see your word this morning. Help us, Lord, to remember it, to apply it, to do with it what you want. Thank you for Jesus, for your grace shown on the cross. Thank you, Lord, that we don't stand on our own anymore, but by faith in you, we stand under the blood of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.